Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Wow. This is uh, strange. Very, very strange. So we've been in this room uh, every single week since uh, last March. And uh, however, the seats have all been empty. In fact, the seats haven't been in here. They've been stacked against the walls and it's been an empty room. And we have made up your reactions to everything that have happened in this room. And may I say, you have enjoyed immensely everything. <laughs> That we have done. It's been right on every single week, just crushing it. And then in November, we started the outdoor gathering, and, and then there were actual faces to look back at me, and these things prevent me from actually seeing your reactions. It's a little better in here because you're much closer. So just so you know, uh, you know, audible you know, interaction is good because uh, we're still making up this part, still making it up. And then you people that did that weird thing where you got those masks that have your mouth on them, that's just wrong. (laughs) Just completely wrong. It's nothing like looking out and seeing this grin (laughs) the whole time you're talking. So we're venturing into this new series today called Unclean, and uh, I'll be honest with you, the reason we go away and write as a team is for exactly moments like this when uh, I wouldn't do this series at all. And yet, as God leads us into this space, uh, and uh, Colton uh, wrote this series for us, did the outlining for us, uh, what, a, what an incredible challenge it's been for me. And here's the dilemma. The dilemma is that we all desire for the kingdom of God and the church of Jesus Christ to maintain an identity and a purity and a holiness. We all want that. We want it to be scriptural. We want it to be uh, true to its roots. We don't want to see it drift or erode. And sometimes when we embrace that reality, it makes it very difficult for us to do the other piece of the gospel, which is to extend and embrace all of those who need mercy. And so this little series is really reflective of that dilemma and what happens inside of human beings and, you know, some things that are psychological in nature. But, it, but in the life of the church, they're true to who we have been and true to our traditions. And so if you just for a moment just took a really long look at the history of what's going on, we see the, 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 the sort of idea in the Old Testament that, you know, there's a covenant relationship between God and the Jewish people. Walk before me and be blameless, and you will be my, I will be your God, you will be my people, and through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So we already have the presentation of the dilemma. Walk before me and be blameless, and through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Well, these people are messy. <laughs> I mean, you know, they're just messy. There's just a lot of stuff out there. <laughs> not, they're, they're not us. They don't believe like we do. They don't think like we do. They don't come from the traditions we come from. And by the time we reach... Uh, the middle of the narrative, we're already seeing uh, reactions from the prophets saying, God doesn't want your burnt offerings. He wants your heart to be true. You honor him with your lips, but your hearts are far from him. We're already seeing the dilemma that, that somehow the exclusivity 
the, the effort to remain holy and pure has moved away from, because what does he say he wants? I don't want sacrifice, I want mercy. I want mercy. So then when Jesus shows up in the first century, we're already hearing those things. But when Jesus shows up in the first century, we have this firmly established Judaism and the greatest conflict between the Son of God, God inhabited in human flesh, and human beings represented the very best orthodoxy of faith is between the Pharisees and the Son of God. And the problem is the Pharisees represent an idea that we will preserve our purity and our identity and our holiness. And how we have done that is we have decided who is unclean and who must be pushed out of the circle. And then what does Jesus do? He goes to those very people that they have called unclean and he hangs out with them. And I don't know about you, but when I have been studying and preparing over and over, I'm like, oh, man. I'm a Pharisee again. I ended up on the Pharisee side again. That if Jesus walked in today, some of us would be like, you got to watch that guy. He is always where he's not supposed to be. He's always where he's not supposed to be. And when you put those lenses on and you begin to read the gospel story, boy, does it come up. Boy, does it come up. In 1859, Hans Christian Andersen wrote a fable, and he wrote the fable because in the 19th century we had this great scientific awakening, this movement. And, and, and Hans Christian Andersen, being the writer that he is, he recognized that there were some things going on, that there were old school folks who believed in a lot of superstition who were having a lot of conflict with this new movement in science. And then there were a lot of people in this new movement of science who were saying a lot of things that didn't make much sense. And so he wrote a little fable about common sense. And it's called The Emperor Has No Clothes. And so the fable was written as a commentary on society. And so basically the story is this. Two swindlers show up in a town and they say that they possess magical power to weave magical cloth. And that they can weave the most beautiful, soft, best-fitting, intricate cloth that anyone has ever seen in the whole world. It's magical in the sense that only those who are unsophisticated are incompetent are unable to see it. And so the swindlers begin to work on looms without any fabric, and they begin to sew with needles without any thread. And the king pays a large sum of money to purchase the finest set of clothes he has ever owned, and he sends emissaries to check on the progress. And they walk into the factory that has no fabric and no thread, but not wanting to appear unsophisticated or incompetent, they go back to the king and say, it's beautiful. It's just beautiful. This happens over a series of months until finally the clothes are ready to be worn and there's a great procession in the city. And so the king puts on his new clothes and he begins to parade through the streets. And it is said of him that no set of clothes were ever more stirring or beautiful than this set of clothes. As his attendants walked behind him carrying his train until a little child says, the emperor has no clothes. And Hans Christian Andersen writes these words, and the king shivered because he knew it to be true, but not wanting to appear unsophisticated or incompetent, he continued the procession through the streets.
If that's not a commentary on our modern culture, I don't know what is. And listen, it's not just the culture. The culture today is, 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 is it's talking about high-sounding, wonderful ideals that have almost no common sense or substance to them. But listen, the church has been doing that for a long time. We've been talking about a lot of things that are very high ideals, but they have almost no common sense in them. So if you just stopped for a minute and you took that big view and you thought about the end of the Old Testament where the prophets are already talking about the problem and Jesus coming and confronting the Pharisees, 15 centuries later, we have this moment in which Martin Luther has a bunch of questions for the church, which has become completely exclusive and and irrelevant to the world. Irrelevant to the world. And we have in the 16th century the Great Reformation. And a hundred years later, we have John Wesley. John Wesley, who, in the face of Anglicanism, you remember Charles Dickens writing the story of a Christmas carol? Listen, that is the attitude. The attitude is that the poor deserve what they get. The attitude is that if they can't pay their bills, put them in prison. And John Wesley is ministering at a time like this in a church that has said, listen, obviously God loves us and has blessed us. Look at the wealth the church has. Look at how it's all working over here. And John Wesley came along and said, listen, I understand that we want an identity and we want purity and we want holiness, but we have become irrelevant to the needs of the people. And he started something called the Holy Club. And he said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to read the Bible, we're going to pray, and we're going to serve the poor, and we're going to visit the prisons. We're going to turn this thing upside down. And we had this great moment of correction. A hundred years ago, right here in Los Angeles, the pastor of First Methodist Church in downtown Los Angeles, his name was Phineas F. Brzee. His name is Brzee. It's not Breezy. I've heard many, many pronunciations. If you just shift over to our Pasadena campus, that is Brzee Church of the Nazarene. It is named after Phineas F. Brzee, who in downtown Los Angeles, the pastor of First Methodist, became annoyed. And he became annoyed because in the Methodist church at the time, people were seated by how much money they gave. So down front were the people who gave the most money, which meant that the back of the church was reserved for the poor. And he decided to call a church the Church of the Nazarene, naming it after that idea. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? A church that would be for those who are disenfranchised and despised by the culture. And he made this statement, in the church of the Nazarene, the poor will always have a front seat. And we belong to a tradition of these correcting moments in our history. We belong to a tradition that says, the church can't get all over there, up and out. It can't get exclusive. It can't push itself into space in which the need for purity and identity and holiness somehow counteracts the need to embrace what's happening in the world. So Wesley says, how do you live like that? How do you navigate like that? He said, if we're going to rightly interpret Scripture and rightly understand what's going on, there's four things that need to happen. Number one, something needs to be true to Scripture. If we're going to talk about it and and hang on to it, it better be true to Scripture. And not just one Scripture, but to the content of the whole of Scripture. You know what I mean? Like Judas went out and hanged himself. Go thee and do thou likewise. See, that's scriptural. I mean, those two verses aren't right together, but they're both verses. And you and I can both be honest about this. There's a lot of theology and things getting taught in churches today 
that are not true and they're not scriptural. Like God wants you to be rich. Like send me money and God will bless you. Like, you know, a little seed faith and God will grow great. I don't know how you carry that theology to Africa or South America to godly devoted people who barely subsist. But it preaches pretty good in North America. <laughs> you can build a giant church. You can buy a jet. You can do all kinds of things. Doesn't mean it's true to Scripture. Wesley said it's got to be true to Scripture. Number two, it's got to be true to tradition. Now, it's interesting to me when we talk about tradition because what he's saying is if you had a brand new idea that nobody's ever thought about before, the Bible is about revelation. It's about revealing. It's not about the Bible code or things that are buried in there that somebody got laid inside on. Listen, you may have to dig in the tradition to find out, but if it's true to Scripture, it'll be true in the tradition somewhere. It'll, ha it'll have a place in there. Let me give you an example. Everybody doing okay, by the way? Yes. You, you haven't been subjected to this in a long time. <laughs> I'm guessing right now you're thinking, you know, last Sunday I could get up right now and go get a cup of coffee and a donut. <laughs> I could spin the channels a little, come back to him. He's not really moving that fast. <laughs> I'm not going to miss much. And now here you are, captive in the room. You know, you will know we are really open when there are donuts and coffee back. Amen? Yeah. <laughs> How'd it go today? Well, we got applause. What'd they applaud? Donuts and coffee. That's why I love my job. And so... We belong into this tradition, we belong into this process where Wesley said, listen, it's got to be true to Scripture, it's got to be true to tradition, but listen to this. He says it's also got to be true to reason. It's got to be true to reason. It's got to make sense. And then the clincher, number four, by the way, this is called Wesley's quadrilateral. If you ever get you know, in a Wesleyan group and they're throwing around theology, this will come up. Number four, it's got to be true to experience. If you've got a gospel that nobody ever lived... If you've got a transforming power of God that no one's ever experienced, if you've got a premise about who God is and who you are in it that can't be lived out in real life, listen, the gospel is true. It's true, it's true, it's true, it's true. And so into these traditions of how we hold ourselves in this space that, that, that doesn't give in to becoming exclusive it continues to embrace these two things, our identity in Christ, but also it continues to embrace our need to show mercy to everyone and the tendency, the problem historically, how the church moves over here and says that's all unclean and then swings back over here and then swings back over here and that you and I are called to live right here in the middle. And we're called because it's exactly what's going on in the gospel. Listen to the confrontation that's going on in Matthew 9 and think about it with me. It's here. Matthew 9, 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, a whole bunch of other tax collectors and sinners showed up. And they ate with him and with his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, 
they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So we have this crazy thing going on. We have this whole structure of the Pharisees who have identified who they are and how they're supposed to serve, and they've identified their purity and their holiness. And as a matter of convenience, they have identified those who are unclean. It's very regimented. And a chief at the top of the list of people who are unclean are people called tax collectors. Now, by the first century, the tax collectors had evolved. In the old days, the tax collectors bid on the right to be a tax collector, and they were awarded contracts by the Roman government to collect taxes. But by the first century, taxation had become so prolific that, that they were actually recruiting tax collectors. They were needing tax collectors. And the reason they needed so many tax collectors is because they had so many taxes. So I just thought I would read you this because it might make you feel better since tax season has now been extended. We're just always in tax season now. I don't know. You guys know that, right? Sometime between now and next Sunday, I think our taxes are due. Is that true? Sorry to depress you. There were three great stated taxes. There's the ground tax. Every single person paid one-tenth of all of their crops are one-fifth of all of the fruit of the vine. They either had to pay it in cash or in kind. There was an income tax, was a flat 1% for every person. There was a poll tax. Every male from the age of 14 through 65 paid an annual poll tax, and every woman from the age of 12 through age 65 paid the poll tax. In addition, there were other taxes. There was a duty of 25 to 12.5% on all items that were imported or exported. Isn't that a wide range? 25 to 12.5. <laughs> Sounds maybe open to corruption. Uh, you had to pay a tax to travel on the main roads. You had to pay a tax to cross bridges. You had to pay a tax to enter a marketplace. You had to pay a tax to enter a harbor or to exit a harbor. You had to pay a tax on your pack animals. You had to pay a tax on the number of wheels on your cart. You had to pay a tax on the number of axles on your cart. You had to pay taxes for anything you bought or anything you sold, kind of like here. <laughs> but listen to this. Because the tax collectors were so corrupt, they weren't cared for by the Jews and they weren't cared for by the Romans either because they ripped off both groups. So by the first century, they were a completely disenfranchised group of people. And their great sin was that they took bribes from the wealthy so that the wealthy didn't have to pay taxes. So the burden of taxation fell to the poor. And the Pharisees, because they were among the rich, didn't have any problem with calling the tax collectors sinner and pushing them out of the circle. Can you imagine how frustrating it was when Jesus showed up and embraced those people? How galling it was to them? I mean, there's got to be some fear of exposure, right? There's got to be some fear that if we start, if we let those people, they're going to tell stories that we don't want them telling. But two, it's not nice and neat and clean anymore. It's messy. It's embracing people that we have decided are outside the circle of God's grace. So listen to what happens here. Four things that I noticed. Number one, the sanitized live separated and self-centered. So the Pharisees became separated from people around them. 
in the Roman Empire, this became a really big issue. By 70 AD, the Romans occupied Jerusalem and destroy it because of all of the people in the Roman Empire, only the Jews refused to assimilate. They separated themselves and they became focused on themselves. Everything was about their own stuff. Everything is about their own ritual. Everything is about their own processes. Everything is about what they did inside. It's just one of those lessons where do you ever think sometimes that maybe the church has become irrelevant to the culture because we celebrate some things that they don't understand or they don't embrace? And so this separation caused them to be self-centered and they didn't see the hurt of the world. And as Jesus steps into that space, then he's very different. He's very, very different because Jesus lived engaged and focused on others. Now, we're, as we get into this narrative of the gospel, we're going to see several things that are going on. <laughs> One of the things we're going to see is that Jesus touches first and cleanses later. That ain't how it works. There's not a ceremonial piece of that that's not upside down. All the Pharisees were like, no, get cleaned up, and then we'll embrace. But Jesus consistently embraces, and then people get cleaned up. I think we struggle with that. We struggle with that. Number two, the sanitized spoke criticism and analysis. We do that, don't we? When we talk about situations and circumstances in our culture and our world, who's right and who's wrong, I know that in 14 months of isolation, you have not criticized or analyzed anyone. <laughs> not you. I mean, the other people, people maybe watching online, maybe. <laughs> By the way, for you folks online, uh, we're not going to ever abandon you. Uh, I think you know we've been doing this online thing for a long time. Uh, so we'll still be here online every week. So uh, welcome. So as we think about that reality and we think about what's going on, Jesus continuously always had a focus on others and an engagement with others. The people who are outside the circle, that he's consistently going out there and, and involving people who are outside the circle. Do you do that? Now, I know we all identify ourselves with this piece, that, that what I feel, think, believe is the pure stuff, and the people that I don't like or criticize or analyze are the ones that need to be criticized and analyzed. Oh, it's true. Amen. Because <laughs> that's who we are. Because if, if we didn't think that was true, we would think something else. We would change how we think. And I'm just telling you, I wouldn't preach this series. Because it's uncomfortable. Because <laughs> consistently as I study, I'm like, well, well, I'm over here with the Pharisees again. <laughs> this is where I'm comfortable. This is what I like. <laughs> Feels good to me. My people. <laughs> but Jesus consistently engaged. And he focused on others. Number two, the sanitized... Oh, I already said that. You don't want that. <laughs> Number three, the sanitized practice self-righteousness and condemnation. So, so the more we separate and the more we create these, then, we, then the more we justify ourselves for our own spirits and attitudes. Amen? Isn't it fascinating that the Scripture continuously talks about sins of commission and sins of omission? That it consistently talks about attitudes as much as it talks about actions? But we've evolved into a structure in which we believe that as long as you don't commit the capital crimes that these other crimes that are below the surface that involve your attitude or spirit, they're okay. We can live with those. We sanitize those. 
like I've talked to you about this before, when we talk about, you know, stay away from sexual immorality and orgies. Have you seen the list? And gossip and grumbling. Who made that list? <laughs> Man, they were having a bad day or something. You can't put those things in the same list, right? Except they are. Because I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You are close to me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. I want genuine transformation. I don't want you to act religious. <laughs> I want you to be faithful. There's a difference. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And who is my neighbor? And the scribe, wishing to justify himself, asked the question, and who is my neighbor? I don't want to be loving people I don't have to love. A certain man fell among thieves. And who came by? A priest and a Levite and a heretical, disenfranchised, unclean Samaritan. Who was a neighbor to the man who fell among thieves? The one who showed him mercy. Go and do likewise. You see the gospel? <laughs> You see how the trajectory of the gospel becomes so... I mean, for the Pharisees, this just was a constant grind for them until they were so angered that they hung him on a cross to eliminate this uncomfortable truth. So the sanitized practice self-righteousness. Jesus practices sympathy and forgiveness. I like this passage out of Philippians. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not think equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself and became obedient, even to death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Do you get what he's saying? He's saying, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who was the one person who could have been self-righteous and condemning and could have done it right. But instead, he chose not to. He emptied himself and became obedient. He became a servant to all, to the point of sacrificing his life on behalf of others. And so while the Pharisees are, are, are sanitized in this way of being self-righteous and condemning, Jesus practices forgiveness and sympathy. And by the way, how many stories of transformation are the Pharisees telling? None. Nobody's getting transformed. Nobody's getting changed. Nobody's getting cleansed. Nobody's getting redeemed. No captives are getting, getting set free from prison. No broken hearts are being bound up. And then Jesus roams around for three years. And suddenly there is new hope and new life and people are transformed. And tax collectors like Matthew are, are writing gospels. Because who knew that the power of God was to transform people's lives? And that our job was just to love them except maybe Jesus. Number four, the sanitized, celebrated dogma over common sense. We're like that, aren't we? I mean, have you ever just been in church and thought to yourself, if somebody from the outside came in right now, they would be pretty sure that we're all crazy. 
ever happened to you? Because we have our own language and we, we understand our own stuff, don't we? We get it. But I'm not sure necessarily people outside do. Now, we're not very ritualistic here and we don't do a lot of liturgy here, so you know, maybe it's less so for us as a group, but we still have our stuff. You know, Sometimes we sing songs and people are like, I, I don't know what that means. I don't know what that's about. And I think there's a call for us to be distinct in the world, to have the kingdom of God celebrated, but it ought to also make sense. There ought to be some common sense in what we do and say. And as a person that talks to people who are atheistic frequently, our struggle with belief in God, one of the consistent things that come up are citing Christians and leaders who are saying things that don't make any sense. They don't make common sense. Listen, true to scripture, true to tradition, true to reason, true to experience. Jesus, on the other hand, comes along and he celebrates mercy over sacrifice. I know you don't get it. I know all that ritual at the temple doesn't make sense to you. But listen, I want to show you mercy. I want to pull you into the circle. I want to love you in a way that the power of God can be manifest in your life and create transformation. I think it's always important at this moment to ask ourselves this question, why are we talking about this and what's the takeaway let me just tell you a little story. Uh, this 14 months has been uh, very interesting. Uh, I'm sure it has been for you too. Um, I found that over the last 14 months, people have formed very distinct opinions about what ought to happen and what makes sense and what doesn't. Any, anybody here in that group? You can raise your hand online too. And I, uh, I, I think we through this course of these months, we've gotten up every morning and tried to say, how can we be uh, the church of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God alive on earth to the very best of our ability, given the circumstances today? And we've tried to do that. I have at no point felt confident that we've accomplished that. But I think that is very important, that at no point we feel like we've accomplished that. And I feel like that the takeaway from what we're talking about is simply this, that God desires us to be in a place of humility that says, I'm really not sure I know the answer, but what I desire is the kingdom of God to be alive in my life and on earth as it is in heaven. And I know that I'll have to live in this tension. I know that I will always have a tendency, and as this series unfolds, we'll talk a little bit more about the psychology of purity and the psychology of disgust, that we all have mechanisms in us that make us desire to close out what's unclean. It's actually a human trait. But I must always balance that out, identity, purity, and holiness, with the need to embrace those who are in need of mercy and grace. So that I desire that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart are pleasing to God. And I don't pretend to have the answers. I can't let go of this need for identity and purity and holiness. And I can't let go of this need to have mercy and grace. And I should be pulled in these directions every day of my life. I should be pulled. I should never get resolution. Because we desire resolution. And we have people who are. We have people who go, uh, forget it. It's too crazy and it's too messy and the world has gone completely nuts. 
And I'm coming over here, and I'm going to surround myself with like-minded people. Remember that passage of Scripture? There will come a time when people will only listen to what their itching ears want to hear. And I used to think that meant unorthodox teaching. But more and more, I think it might mean ultra-orthodox teaching. This is comfortable to me. I don't want to be bothered by all of that. I don't want to be in the messiness of the world. I don't want to be confused. I don't want to have to listen to people. But somehow we're called to live in this tension in a humble way. Yes, I desire to be pleasing to God, true to His Word, true to Scripture, but I desire to embrace those in need. I don't want to become irrelevant to my world. I don't want the gospel to become a message that makes no sense. I don't want to live in a place where people are no longer being redeemed and lives are no longer being transformed. We need the gospel of Jesus Christ to liberate, to set the prisoners free, to bind up the brokenhearted. Our world, never has there been a time in my lifetime when there was more hurt in our culture and in our world. It's up to you and I to go be those people that represent the very best of the love of Jesus Christ and the holiness of the kingdom of God. Let's pray. God, would you help us? As we think about what it would mean for us to bring down the walls, what it would mean for us to live in this place of humility in which we fully embrace your word and your call to purity and identity and holiness. But we also know that you desire mercy more than sacrifice. That somehow we don't want to have our lips close to you and our hearts far from you. That we want to walk in humility. We want to have our focus on others. We want to be practicing forgiveness and compassion instead of condemnation and analysis. And so as we come back together as the church of Jesus Christ, would you help us? Would you lead us? Would you challenge us? Would you dig deep into who we are and cause us to think about the words we're saying and the attitudes with which we're speaking them? Lead us, we pray. Guide us, we pray. Hear our response to your word and do your work in each one of us, we ask in Jesus' name. And everybody said together, amen. amen. Let's stand as we respond to the word. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.